You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. The title of our Easter series is Redemption. The man, the plan, and the power of God. Uh, this plan of redemption, the man. Who is the man? Jesus. The plan, the plan of salvation. Laid out, thought through, premeditated before the earth was even created. Amazing to ponder. And it brings the power of God. We see the power of God revealed in his plan of salvation. And so really looking forward to getting into this series with you. Uh, as we begin, I would like to start by asking this question. Who is Jesus? It is the most important question that could ever be asked. The implications of this question are profound. And its significance is unparalleled. There is no question that carries the significance that the question has, has of, of this, who is Jesus? And simply asking the question invokes a vast array of emotions. Uh, from those uh, who uh, get host hostile and, and, and they have a hatred for Jesus to the, those who have fervent adoration and worship of Jesus and everything in between, the lukewarm and everything in between. Isn't it interesting how much hostility the name Jesus can bring? Uh, like uh, some atheists, for example, like if you don't believe in pink, pink unicorns, like you don't get mad at pink unicorns, right? Uh, you just think they're not real. Uh, but that's not the case when it comes to the name Jesus. Uh, those who do not believe, uh, whoa, they get upset, right? And so it's interesting. Uh, this question, by the way, who is Jesus, is the one question that God demands an answer for from every single human. God is asking you, and God will continue to ask you, who is Jesus? And I want you to know, we do not answer God with our words, but with what? With our life. With our life. Who is Jesus? We answer with our life. And answering the question incorrectly, no matter the excuse, ultimately leads to our eternal damnation. And so we must take the question seriously. Answering it correctly with our life leads to eternal life and life abundant. And so it is important that we look at this question. There are many answers to who Jesus is. Uh, what are some of the answers people give when we ask the question, who is Jesus? What are some of the answers? He's a good man. That's probably the most popular answer. He's a good man. 
He's a good teacher. He's a humanitarian. He was a wise leader uh, who got himself in trouble with Rome and with the religious leaders of Israel. And as a result, well, he suffered a very unfortunate death. But the strange thing is, uh, that answer seems fine, but if you study the life of Jesus, you'll find that Jesus claimed to be God. You cannot be a good teacher, a nice person, and claim to be God. You are either delusional or you are evil. For telling people you are God when you're not is very dangerous, very deceiving, and very delusional. There are others who answer the question of who Jesus is, and they say, well, he was just another religious zealot trying to gain followers. And, you know, like all religious zealots, he was trying to make a name for himself, and ultimately that got him in trouble, and that led to his death. His followers then embellished all of his stories. And like Greek mythology, over time, those stories evolved into what is modern-day Christianity. But again, if you study the life of Jesus at all, you realize that Jesus never sought fame or never sought power. That's not who he was at all. As a matter of fact, there were many who tried to make him king on multiple occasions. And what did he do? Well, he withdrew himself and would go to another area because he did not want them to make him king. It wasn't time. So Jesus was not a religious zealot trying to gain followers, just the opposite. Furthermore, neither did his stories evolve like Greek mythology. For in one lifetime from his passing, all the books of the Bible were written, and these teachings had spread across the entire world in a very short period of time, not evolving over a long period of time like Greek mythology. So that answer doesn't hold any water. Uh, Moreover, he wasn't seeking fame. He wasn't seeking. He purposefully went to the cross. So that doesn't match up. So it still leaves us with a question, who is Jesus? And for those of us who know him, we realize that Jesus was God incarnate. God in human form, the creator who became creation, the spiritual God who became a physical man. And he did so to go to a cross and to cleanse us of our sins. And I want you to know something. Uh, when we talk about Jesus going to the cross and cleansing us of our sins, that is really only half of the story. And half of the story is not true. I want you to know Jesus did not go to the cross to cleanse you of your sins. And that's the end of the story. Jesus went to the cross to cleanse us of our sins so that 
we can enter in to a relationship and into fellowship with God. And if we leave that part off and we just come to Jesus to have, be cleansed of sins, uh, we haven't answered the question of who Jesus is. The purpose of cleansing of sin is to lead us into an intimate relationship with God, to restore fellowship that was broken by sin. And so, uh, uh, again, we answer these questions, uh, not with words, but with our life. And in our four-part Easter series, we're going to be looking at who Jesus is, who, what Jesus came to accomplish, uh, the power that Jesus possesses to give us new life, and what that new life should look like with Jesus as the Lord of our life. And uh, that'll be over the, the next four lessons in our Easter series. Today, as we jump into John chapter 2, uh, we're going to begin answering uh, these questions, and uh, we're going to begin at an unusual place, right? John chapter 2, you say, Dave, that's not a normal spot for an Easter series. I realize that. Uh, but John chapter 2, if you know it, what is it? It is the first miracle Jesus does. And it reveals the first two questions of our series, who Jesus is and what Jesus came to accomplish. So with that, let's open our Bibles. Let's get into John chapter 2 and let's read. And let's pray before we do. Uh, Jesus, we come before you right now. We've come to worship you. We've worshiped you in song. We worship you by starting our week with you, Lord, on this, the first day of the week. And now, Lord, we want to worship you with our mind, that we might... Uh, understand who you are, that you might reveal yourself to us anew and afresh, a deeper understanding of all that you have laid out. For God, you are infinite. Jesus, you are the creator. Uh, Lord, we want to know your ways. We want to walk in your ways. Jesus, we pray that you would grant us repentance, that you would lead us in paths of righteousness for your namesake as the good shepherd. And Lord, we call upon you now asking that you would have your way with us. Give your church ears to hear what the Spirit would speak to us today, for we ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. John chapter 2. Uh, let's take a look. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. On the third day? Uh, the third day of what? Well, uh, if we would, would have read John chapter 1, uh, it is the third day since Jesus called Philip and Nathanael to be his disciples. This is the first week of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, Jesus is just picking the disciples now. Uh, he's picked several. Uh, Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. John did not know who Jesus was. John knew he was sent by God to be a forerunner for the Messiah who was finally coming. This long-awaited Messiah, the one that was promised from the beginning of time all the way from the Garden of Eden, this Messiah that was promised, John was told, John, he's coming in your lifetime you are the forerunner. Announce his coming. And so John was preaching, repent. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah is coming. 
And yet John did not even know who he was. And one day John was there teaching, preaching, baptizing. And he looks up his eyes. And he takes a deep breath. And he stops everything. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Messiah is here. And Jesus comes and he's baptized by John. And now Jesus begins to call his disciples. And he calls the disciples together. He's just called a bunch of them. And now three days after he calls Philip and Nathaniel, uh, look at this, verse 2, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to a wedding. Uh, this is so cool. Uh, Jesus was very winsome. Jesus was very social. Jesus was very relational. Uh, he was not ascetic like John the Baptist was. John the Baptist was kind of a loner, off in the wilderness by himself, wore freaky clothes, ate grasshoppers, had grasshopper legs and his scraggly beard, out in the wilderness. Grasshoppers and honey was his diet. He was ascetic, fasting all the time, very serious, very spiritual. Jesus comes on the scene and he's winsome. He's relational. He's a joy to be around. Kids come and climb on his lap. He's invited to weddings and he goes uh, this is our Jesus this is who he is and they invited both he and his disciples to this wedding verse 3 and when they ran out of wine the mother of Jesus said to them they have no wine uh, weddings in that day were not like weddings in our day uh, uh, weddings were a seven day celebration uh, my daughter uh, is getting married, and she was over at the house yesterday with her fiancé, and we're planning out the wedding, right? And it's expensive, right? And it's just for one day. Imagine a seven-day wedding. And here, at this seven-day wedding, maybe this family finances were tight. I don't know. But what happens? They run out of wine. And wine, it's not like you could just order glasses of water, right? Like uh, wine was the drink when water was polluted, right? And, and, and running out of wine would be a big deal. Wedding over, it would have caused tremendous embarrassment and, and shame to the bride and to the groom and to the parents of the bride and groom and here they run out of wine and look at this Jesus's mom comes to Jesus and says they have no wine uh, probably several days into the wedding feast verse 4 and Jesus said to her woman what does your concern have to do with me my hour has not yet come underline those words my hour has not yet come <clears throat> we'll look at that in just a minute and his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Uh, uh, woman, 
What kind of address is that? He didn't say, Mom. Oh, Mom. No, 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 no. Woman. It wasn't a derogatory statement like it may kind of be in the English language, but it wasn't an endearing statement either. It was a firm statement. And he says, my hour has not yet come. What does that have to do with me? Let me ask you, in the scheme of the world, in the scheme of Jesus' plan to be a savior of the world, in the scheme of humanity, how big a deal is it that this wedding ran out of wine? How big a deal? Not big at all. On a scale of 1 to 100, it would be a negative 500, right? Like, big deal. So they ran out of wine. On the scheme of human history, it means absolutely nothing. But for this individual bride and groom, for this family, how big a deal was it? Pretty big deal. Pretty big deal. And isn't it interesting that Jesus takes interest, takes care, has compassion on our small trivial matters. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it comforting? Isn't it kind? Woman, what does this have to do with me on the scheme of my plan of... Uh, uh, and she says, whatever he says to you, do it. If you wanted to have one memory verse in the Bible, that's a good memory verse. Whatever Jesus says, do it. Uh, I wouldn't need to teach anymore, right? That just, hey, uh, come in for counseling. Hey, whatever Jesus says, do it. Okay, go, you're done, uh, right? Uh, good memory verse. Uh, by the way, it reveals something, doesn't it? Uh, Mary is here, and she tells the servants of the wedding, those working for the, whatever he says, do it. it. It would appear that Mary has some kind of responsibility, some kind of oversight of this wedding. Maybe she was the wedding coordinator, uh, we had a wedding here yesterday, and uh, Jocelyn, Pastor JC's wife, was the wedding coordinator. 2,000 years later, nothing has changed. She's doing the role of Mary, right? Uh, uh, and here, maybe she was the wedding coordinator. Verse 6. <clears throat> now, there were set there six water pots of stone. I want you to underline this. According to the manner of purification of the Jews. Underline that according to the manner of purification of the Jews. And they contained 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So if there's six of them containing 20 to 30 gallons, that's 120 to 180 gallons uh, of water. And Jesus said, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. What do you think the servants thought when he did that? Oh my gosh, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to take this water and pour it into a wine craft and take it out and serve it as the wine for the... Oh, that must have been challenging, right? Uh, take this out. And so they, they took a step of faith and they took it. Verse 9. And they go around and they pour it. And, and, and when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine... And did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him. Every man at the beginning of the wedding feast. Sets out the good wine. 
And when the guests have well drunk and gotten a little sloppy, then he sets out the inferior, the cheap stuff. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. What does that reveal? Not only did Jesus turn this water into wine, but what? It was the best wine the guy had ever had. Oh my gosh. Where did you get this? This is amazing. Yeah, when the creator of the universe makes wine, it's pretty good wine, right? <laughs> Verse 11, circle this. This, read this. these next three words with me. This what? The beginning of signs. Circle that. The beginning of signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested or revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Wow, wow, interesting stuff. Here it says, this is the beginning of signs. It doesn't say this is the beginning of miracles. Why did it say <clears throat> signs? The beginning of signs. What does a sign do? A sign points you to something. A sign gives you instruction. A sign gives you direction. Uh, we have a sign on the five right here. It says Carlsbad Village Drive. So that you know which off-ramp to take when you come to church. And before you get to call it Carlsbad Village Drive, there's another sign. And it says Carlsbad Village Drive. Three miles and that tells you, get out of the left lane, slow down, and get over to the right lane because your off-ramp is coming. It's a sign. It's telling you something. Uh, not a miracle. It is a miracle, but that wasn't God's intent to do miracles. It was his intent to give what? A sign. What was the sign? Well, the sign is profound. The sign is the Messiah is here. Uh, very interesting. By the way, uh, know this, church. Uh, there are those who look at Christianity and they're like looking for a miracle every day, right? There's like, smack me on the forehead, knock me over, give me a miracle. Hallelujah. Did I scare you? <laughs> uh, I want you to know uh, God is not so into miracles. <gasps> What's that? Well, you see, God has set all kinds of laws into place. They are called natural laws. God's natural laws are like gravity or the speed of light or sowing and reaping or the spectrum of light or there's all kinds of laws in the universe, laws that keep the earth spinning on its axis at 33 and a third degrees, uh, laws that keep the earth orbiting around the sun on a perfect orbit, never deviating by a fraction, uh, just staying perfectly aligned, all kinds of laws. And may I say something? All of those law laws are simply God's will being done. God's laws are God's will. And God has put all of these laws in place to bring order in the universe. 
so that when you sow seed, you can actually grow food. And aren't you glad these laws are in place? God is not into breaking these laws. These laws are God's servants, if you will. They exist to accomplish God's will. And by them, he keeps the universe in order. Now, God is outside of these laws. And those laws are just his servants. And there are times when God will do a miracle and he will break these laws and do something miraculous for his purpose, for his will, for his glory. And this was one of those times. And he uh, does this, and it says that it is the beginning of signs. Or in other words, it is his first miracle. And I want you to think about this. Why? Why now? Here at 30 years of age, Jesus does his first miracle? He had never done one miracle before. Why now? Why now? Jesus' public ministry begins with a radical, miraculous miracle that shows his power and authority that had never been seen before. But again, why now? Why after 30 years of silence? Why after 30 years of normalcy? Why not one single miracle the whole time of Jesus' life up till now? Why now does Jesus burst forth with such power and authority? Why now? Why now, on this, is the beginning of his ministry, does he go to John and get baptized? And as he's baptized, this voice comes from the heaven, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Why didn't that happen all the time? Why was this now the first time? And why is this now the beginning of those signs? Well, the answer is, is because God has a divine timetable. And this plan of salvation, your redemption, was laid out before the foundation of the earth. Before the universe was spoken into existence, God laid out this plan of salvation. And so why now? Why not 30 years ago? Here's why. Jesus had to achieve his role as our human kinsman before he could purchase our salvation on the cross. I need you to think about that. Read those words on the screen. Let me say them again. Jesus had to achieve his role as our human kinsman before he could purchase our salvation on the cross. Wow, let's think about that. Let's look into that. Uh, as crazy as it sounds, the Bible teaches that Jesus came into this world to die. That is why he came. The cross was no accident. It wasn't bad luck. It was Jesus' aim. 
It was Jesus' vision. It was his passion. Uh, His mission was to die on the cross so that he might cleanse us of our sins, which are many, and bring us into brand new life in relationship with God. That was his purpose. That was his mission. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we will read uh, Jesus in tremendous torment, knowing what was coming as he takes the wrath of God on the cross, as he takes the wrath of God for our sin upon himself. The Bible says his soul was deeply troubled. Troubled so deeply that the capillaries in his skin were bursting and he was sweating great drops of blood. And as he was in this anguish, he said, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? For this purpose, I came into the world. Oh, this was his purpose. This is why he came. But before Jesus' death could atone for human sin, and before he could accomplish the salvation of the human race, Jesus had to do something. Do you know what he had to do? He had to live as a regular man, as 100% man, every day of his life. He had to live as a regular man. So, Jesus never used his divine power one time these entire 30 years. He lived as a regular human man. He went to school. God went to school. He woke up in the morning and he used the restroom. God, are you kidding me? When he went to school, he battled all the things that you battled when you went to school. He was mocked. He was jeered. Uh, PG-13, bear with me. He was called a bastard. He endured hardship. He was ridiculed. He experienced all of the things that we have to experience. He experienced all the suffering that we experience. And he experienced it 100% as a man, never once using his divine power for his own glory, even though he had all divine power at his disposal. Why? Why? If someone called me a bastard and I had divine power, you know what I would do? Oh, yeah? Can't move. Never did that. Why? Why? Well, there was a reason. Jesus had to achieve his role as our human kinsman before he could purchase our salvation. What does that mean? Well, let me ask you something. Uh, We all battle a sin nature, all of us. How many of you chose to have a sin nature? You said, God, I would really like a sin nature, please. How many of you? Uh, You're a fruit loop if you would choose that, right? Uh, Nobody would choose that. None of us chose that. Okay, well then how did you get your sin nature? 
Where did it come from? Well, you inherited it from your parents. You inherited it from a man. I'm amazed as I'm getting older, I walk in front of the mirror and I see my dad. <laughs> dad, what are you doing here? My father passed away uh, eight, eight years ago. I'm like, I see my dad. How does that happen? Sometimes I say things and I hear my dad's voice. And I never even lived with my dad one day. Crazy. Uh, how does that happen? Well, we have an inheritance. And we inherited our sin nature from our parents. Or in other words, from a human. And you say, Dave, why are you telling me all this? Well, where did my dad inherit his sin nature from? From his dad. And this goes back all the way to who? To Adam and Eve. We inherited this sin nature from Adam and Eve. And you say, well, Dave, why are you telling me all this? Well, here's why. Because it is not just for God to give you salvation as a free gift. That is very unjust. And may I tell you something? God has a problem. Because God is always what? Just. He is always just. But it is not just to give you salvation as a free gift. Let me illustrate. Let's say that Jason here didn't do any... Oh, I'll use myself because this is a bad analogy. Let's say that David here, David is in college. And all year long, I've been going dirt bike riding and going surfing, and I never did any homework. And now it's time for the term paper. And the term paper determines my entire grade. And it is... Two nights before the term paper is due, and now David goes, I guess I should open a book. Ever been there? And now I come to Jason. Jason, I didn't do any of my homework, man. I've been dirt bike riding every day. I've been surfing. I've been running amok. And Jason says, no problem, uh, because I wrote two term papers. I wrote one term paper, and I changed my mind, and I did this, because Jason's incredibly brilliant. And he says, I'll give you my other term paper. So I go, you'll do that for me? Yeah, no problem. I'm not going to use it anyway. Here it is. Go ahead and put your name on it and turn it in. So I take Jason's term paper, and I turn it into the teacher. And I get it back, and I get an A in the class. Woohoo! What did I deserve? An F. What did I get? An A. Everybody go, woohoo! That's good news. Now... That is really kind. That is really loving. That is really merciful. That is really generous of Jason. But is it just? No. no, it is radically unjust. And may I tell you something? That's exactly what Jesus does for us. I deserve an F on my life because I've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God all the time. And Jesus comes along and says, no problem. I got a perfect life. I'll let you use it. I'll let you put your name on it. And you can have that perfect life. Well, now we have a problem. If I'm Satan, and I'm standing before God on judgment day, and there's David in the courtroom, and he says, let's look at your life. Oh, my gosh, he did this, and he did this, and he just pulls this laundry list of sins that's about 144,000 miles long. All the sins I've done. 
And Jesus says, they're all washed, they're all forgiven. Enter in to the joy of your Lord. Satan will say, God, you are a kind God. God, you are a merciful God. God, you are a loving God. God, you are a gracious God. God, you are a generous God. And the superlatives could go on. But God, you are not what? Just. And I want you to know something. Can God be unjust? No. God cannot be sometimes just and sometimes merciful. He is always just and he is always merciful. So now we have a big problem. How do I get the A on my term paper called life? And God still be just. Well, here's God's solution to that problem. That's a major dilemma. Would you agree? That is a major dilemma. And I'm not making any of this up. All I'm doing is teaching you the book of Romans in a nutshell. Here's God's answer to that dilemma. God will stand up and say, well, how did David inherit his, excuse me, how did David receive his sin nature? He inherited it from a man, from his father. It goes back to Adam. He, in, he didn't choose a sin nature. He inherited a sin nature from a man. Therefore, it is just for me to allow him to inherit a righteous nature if it comes through a man. And so in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God is both, Romans would tell us, just and the justifier of those who believe in Christ Jesus. And his justice is not robbed by his mercy and his grace and his incredible generosity. He is both just and the justifier. Do you understand? Wow. So it would be of no value for Jesus to go to the cross on our place. It would accomplish nothing for you and I unless he fulfilled his role as a human kinsman. And in order for this to happen, Jesus had to live 30 years of his life as a regular everyday human never using his divine power for himself, being ridiculed, being mocked. Think of this. The creator of food went hungry. The creator of water got thirsty. The creator of the sun got cold. And he did all this so that he might fulfill his role as our human kinsmen. Astonishing. This is why when Jesus was baptized and he went into the wilderness for 40 days, Satan put the screws to him. Jesus fasted and Satan came to him. He's at the point of death. Jesus has fasted for 40 days. He's at the point of death. And Satan comes to him and says, Listen, since you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Had Jesus done that, he would have used his divine power for his human benefit, and he would have been unable to be 
our Savior on the cross because he would no longer be our kinsman. He endured every single hardship in life as a regular human. And now after 30 years of testing and proving that he could be the second Adam, the Bible calls him. Adam was made perfect. Jesus, uh, perfect. The second Adam, the only man ever who experienced all the hardship of life and always obeyed God. The only man who never once sinned. Now, after being proven for 30 years, God says, okay, now you can begin. Uh, uh, after 30 years of being tested and proven, now the Father gives Jesus the green light and says, you can now manifest your divine power as the Messiah and begin your public ministry at a wedding in Cana. Oh my gosh, how incredible. This gives us tremendous hope, man. This gives us tremendous hope. Uh, Jesus knows what it's like to be human and endure all the hardships. Look at this verse in Hebrews, what Hebrews tells us about this. This is Hebrews 4.15. Let me hear you read this in a thundering unified voice. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. Let's pause there. Uh, let's say it in the positive. That's said in the We do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. Wow. Look at this. He was in all points tempted as we are. And yet what? Without sin. Read it with me. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Lord, I'm really struggling, man. Some people are saying bad things about me. Jesus, I want to take this into my own hands. I just want to chew them out so bad. Lord, would you help me? Would you comfort me? I'm really hurting over this. And we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness because he endured it himself. All oh, the incredible grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, I blew it. I was faced with temptation, and once again, I blew it, and I fell in temptation, and I did what I know is against you. Oh, Lord, please forgive me. And we can come to a high priest who says, I totally understand. I know how difficult it is. You're forgiven. Now walk with me. Get on the right path again. Oh, how incredible. I love this about God. And here Jesus, fully God, fully man, faced all hardship as a regular hum human. And I tell you what, that is astonishing to ponder. And I would pray that today as you go home, you would meditate on this fact at length. And again, for 30 years, Jesus went through life as a regular human. And now the Father gives him a green light. And he says, you can do these things. Uh, uh, Jesus chose to manifest his power as the Messiah at a wedding in Cana. How interesting. How interesting. For the first time, Jesus does miracles and signs that reveal not only is he 100% human, but he is also what? 100% God. Wow. He speaks 
and elements change. Only God has that kind of power. And uh, oh my gosh, how amazing to consider. Now notice what Jesus said about this whole thing. He said, my hour has what? Not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Hey, what does this have to do with me and this plan of redemption that I'm bringing on the universe? This is small potatoes. My hour has not yet come. What does that mean? What hour is he talking about? Well, the hour of his death. The hour when he takes the wrath of God for the sins of man on his own shoulders. The hour of him being placed into the grave. The hour of him revealing he has power even over death by the resurrection. The hour of him showing his divine nature in a glorified body. The hour of him ascending up to heaven in radiant glory as angels stand by and say, in the same radiant glory that he departed, he's coming back again. Be ready. That was his hour. And Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, but it's coming close. And so I will show you a sign that that hour is at hand. Uh, that hour, by the way, was a term that Jesus himself would use frequently. He used it 14 times, uh, this hour, referring to his cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. The hour when Jesus would show us the depth of God's love for us. For God so loved the world, God so loved you, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. The hour when Jesus would show his incredible love for the Father. For he always did the will of the Father. The hour of the irrefutable proof of Jesus' deity when he resurrects from the dead three days, at just as exactly as he said it, he would. The hour when Jesus' earthly ministry would be finished as he hangs on the cross and says, it is finished. The hour when God's plan of salvation laid out before the beginning of time would come into fruition and be completed. The hour when God would be fully glorified. And that wine that Jesus turns, that water that Jesus turns into wine represents a picture that that hour is coming. For that wine represents what? Jesus' blood. Woman, what have I to do? With, what does this pertain to me? My hour has not yet come. Uh, but I know that that time is coming. It's now three years away and I will show you a sign. How amazing. Uh, it would be three years before Jesus' hour came and he goes to, to, to the, his death and his resurrection. But this first miracle gives us powerful insight into what his death and resurrection would accomplish. And I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to just pass over this. I want, I want you to see this. What did Jesus turn into wine? 
not water. What did Jesus turn into wine? Not just water. What specifically did it say? I had you underline it. What did it say? Ah, water that was used for purification of the Jews. Water that was used for ceremonial cleansing. What's that? Yeah, there were laws in the Bible. They were ceremony. And one of them was, yes, you can't eat until you wash your hands and are ceremonially cleansed. There were all kinds of laws. If you were a scribe, a scribe was the one who copied the scrolls and, and, and wrote the, you know, uh, kind of like a Xeroxed, the, made copies of the scrolls of the Bible. That was their job. When they came to the name Yahweh, Jehovah, guess what they had to do? They had to drop the pen, and they had to go and be ceremonially cleansed. A big ritual. And then they could come back and write the word Yahweh. If the word Yahweh appeared again three words later, guess what they had to do? Drop the pen, and before they wrote it, and go and get ceremonially cleansed. Big process. And then come back and write the word again. Uh, <clears throat> big process. Uh, this resolute message of Jesus' inaugural miracle. He didn't just turn water to wine. He turned the water that was used for ceremonial cleansing into wine. Big difference. And what is Jesus doing? What is the sign of that miracle? Here's the sign. The purpose of all religious ceremony is now fulfilled in Jesus. All religious ceremony from Adam through Moses up until the day of Jesus, all of it was worthless. It accomplished nothing. How much did ceremonial cleansing cleanse you of your sins? None. Crazy. Everything from the beginning of time was only ceremony. From the time of Adam on, all religion was only, say it with me, was only ceremony. It did absolutely nothing. But it did point me to the one who could do everything. You see, it was all about him. Think about this. In the very beginning of time, Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sin. What did they do? Well, they clothe themselves with the works of their hands. They sew fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. What nakedness? It wasn't like when they sinned, they go, oh my gosh, you're naked. Never knew that before. No, 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 no. No. We're not talking physical nakedness. We're talking spiritual nakedness. You see, Adam and Eve were clothed with the radiant glory of God. When you look at them, they were illuminant. They were, they were like light. They were radiant. They were, and the moment they sinned, the Holy Spirit of God departed from them, and they were naked. And they try to cover their spiritual nakedness by the works of their hands. We do the same thing today. Well, I'm going to try to be a good person. 
I'm going to try to, I'm going to work in a soup kitchen. Oh, really? You think you can cover your spiritual nakedness by the works of your hand? Not a chance. But we think that way. And it makes sense to them until you hear the voice of God. And they heard the voice of God walking in the cool of the garden. And God said, where are you, Adam? And Adam goes, oh my gosh, I'm afraid because I'm naked. Oh, I thought you did good works to cover your... Yeah, it made sense until he heard the voice of God. And it'll make sense to you too to say, I'm a good person. I think as long as I do more good than bad, then everything's going to be fine. Until you stand in the presence of a holy God. And then you'll realize, what was I thinking? And so God comes along. And what does God do? God says, that is a ridiculous covering. And he clothes them with animal skins. Before you can close someone with animal skins, what has to happen to the animal? Adam and Eve had never seen death before. And Adam and Eve, God tells them, put your hands on the animal. Confess your sin. And that animal will die in your place. And then you'll be clothed with the skin of that animal. Wow, interesting. That animal is a picture of Jesus. It's called penal substitutionary atonement. That animal taking the punishment that I deserve, the death that I deserve, and now I'm clothed with his skin. That is a picture of who? Jesus, who dies on the cross in my place, takes the punishment of my sin and clothes me with his righteousness. But all of that was just ceremony. It accomplished nothing. Look what the book of Hebrews writes about this. Hebrews 10, verse 1. Let me hear you read this. The law, excuse me, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never make perfect those who draw near. Did that animal sacrifice that God did in the Garden of Eden, did that give Adam and Eve salvation? No. no. It was only telling them there's a Messiah who's going to come who will do this for you. So it doesn't matter what religious ceremony you take. You can do Passover and put the Passover blood over your, the door of your house. It's just ceremony you can fast you can do this you can do that it's all just ceremony and here's what jesus was saying oh well let's go on the rest of this first before we, we I almost got sidetracked look what it says it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins it was just ceremony Therefore, when he, that's Jesus, came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And he lived 30 years to fulfill that purpose, right? As a regular man. Uh, let's go on. In burnt offerings and in sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. They were just what? Ceremony. Then I said, Jesus speaking, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. In the book of Genesis, it was written of me. In the volume of the entire Bible, it was written of me. All of it is pointing to me. 
The resolute message of Jesus' inaugural miracle was the purpose of all religious ceremony is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Wow. Just amazing. All of Israel's religious observances, all of them were just ceremony to point us to Jesus. And it is so appropriate that Jesus began his ministry with this miracle or with this sign. You see, Jesus was making a statement by this. By turning water for ceremonial cleansing into wine, he had tremendous foresight in doing that. He was saying all of the foreshadows in the Old Testament are now a reality in me. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And where did he choose to do this? At a wedding in Cana. Why? Why a wedding of all places? To do your first sign, to do your first miracle. Why? Because he is the bridegroom and you are the bride. And he says, listen, I want you to know all the ceremony is now over. The bridegroom is here and you are my bride. Wow. Wow. Just amazing. Now check this out. How many water pots did Jesus turn into wine? Notice this. Verse 6. How many water pots? Six. Six in the Bible. Numbers are uh, symbolic of things. Six is the number of what? Six is the number of imperfection. It is the number of man because man is sinful. Uh, Six is the number of imperfection or incompleteness. Seven is the number of completeness. Eight is the number of new beginnings. You have seven octaves on a scale, and then you begin a new octave, a new beginning. You have seven days in the week, and then you begin a new week. Uh, You have seven continents, right? Seven is the number of perfection. Six is the number of what? Imperfection. What is the message? This ceremonial cleansing is what? Imperfect. It can never make anyone righteous. But the wine is perfect. It can bring everyone righteousness. What did, the, what did the water represent? What did the water represent? The water was used for what? Ceremonial cleansing. What did the wine represent? Jesus on the night he was betrayed and arrested said this cup represents, this wine represents the cup of a new covenant. My blood shed for the remission of your sins. The water represented ceremonial cleansing. The wine represents the new covenant. The ceremonial cleansing, six, imperfect. The wine, perfect cleansing. Just amazing. Uh, uh, Crazy to consider. Only Jesus' blood can cleanse us of our sin. No amount of religious ceremony can ever do that. Jesus is saying with this inaugural message, the cleansing of God is here. The ceremony is done and put away with. The cleansing from God is here. And it's available to all in abundance. How much water was turned into wine? There was 30 gallons in six water pots. That's 180 gallons of wine They didn't need anywhere near that much. That is just an hyperabundance. 
Why? Here's why. God is saying, my salvation is available to all in hyperabundance. How amazing. How amazing. Here's the question. Who is Jesus to you? Is he your Lord? You see, you answer the question not with your words, but with what? With your life. Who is he to you? Uh, Are you caught up in religious ceremony? Are you trying to cleanse your own sin by the works of your hands? It is folly. It is futile. Come to Jesus now. How do you do it? It is a matter of faith. You come to him and you say, wow, I believe you are God. And I also believe you are fully man. And that the two came together and you did all this for me. And you say, now, Jesus, I want to make you the authority of my life. Then and then alone does he give you salvation as a free gift. Wow. May we be wise. I want to wrap our time up by looking at two nuances of this miracle very quickly in verse 9. Two more amazingly profound nuances. Look at verse 9. Let's read it together. Uh, I'll read. Follow along. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. I want you to underline that. Those, that little parenthesis verse right there. The servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man at the beginning of the wedding sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk and got a little sloppy, then he sets out the inferior, the cheap stuff. Read this line with me. You have kept the good wine until now. And this is the beginning of signs that Jesus did. It is interesting, is it not? Who did Jesus reveal himself to? Who got to know that he was the Messiah? The servants. Who did not get to know? The master of the feast. Very interesting. Jesus revealed his divine power as the Messiah only to the servants. This reveals so much about the heart of God. Jesus loves to reveal himself to those who serve. Jesus loves to reveal himself to the humble. These are the values of God's kingdom. Do you want God to reveal himself more to you? What do we need to do? Humble ourselves and serve others. Jesus reveals himself to the humble. He blesses those who are humble. Uh, Humble yourself, for God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. How interesting that he reveals himself to the humble here. Can you imagine how stoked these servants were to see and to discover that Jesus is the Messiah? Oh my gosh. Can you imagine how stoked they were to discover his power? And to get saved and to see him turn water into wine and to enter into new life with their Messiah. 
God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Jesus himself said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be what? The servant of all. Know this about your God. Elevate yourself, and he will withdraw. Humble yourself, and he will pour himself out to you. Uh, the second thing and last thing that I want to bring to your attention, uh, this master of the feast, what did he say about this wine? I can imagine how nervous the servants were. Like they're taking, they're pouring water into a wine craft, and they go to the master of the feast in faith, and they go, oh my gosh, and they pour it in, and he tastes it, and he says what? This is the best wine I have ever tasted. Where did you get it? Let me tell you something. When the creator of the universe makes wine, it's good wine. It's good wine. And Jesus says, I'm not going to make it again until I make it anew with you at the consummation at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm going to start making wine there, and the next time I make it is going to be there. Wow, how amazing. Uh, here's what we see. Uh, you saved the best till now. Uh, here's what this is telling us. Life in Jesus is superior to anything else we have ever experienced. To be saved by his miraculous grace. To be forgiven without any merit of my own whatsoever. To be cleansed anew and afresh each and every day. To be saved by his grace. To be led by his Holy Spirit as he leads, guides, and directs us into all truth. So that as we enter into our marriage, he leads, guides, and he teaches me how to love my wife. He teaches you how to love your husband. He teaches you how to parent your children. He teaches you how to be a friend. To be led, guided, and directed by his Holy Spirit. To dwell in his presence as he uh, just says, oh, you are mine. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Oh my gosh. Uh, you have saved the best. You have saved the best until now. All of the religious ceremony was just pointing us towards this moment. God's law was good, right? The Mosaic law, the old covenant, it was good. It showed us what was right. It showed us what was wrong. Problem? What's the problem? We couldn't keep it. And therefore, that good law brought judgment to me. Moses' law was good, but what was the problem with it? We couldn't keep it. This is very interesting, by the way. Uh, think of this. The Bible clearly tells us that the law of God did not make one person righteous. The law of God never made one person saved. No one. Why? Because the law was not good? No, the law was good. If it was possible for a law to make someone good, it would be that law. Problem? The Bible says, Romans tells us, it was weak according to the flesh. Our flesh couldn't do it. What the law could not do and that it was weak according to the flesh, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin on the cross. Wow, amazing. Uh, the new wine, way better than the, anything else, right? Uh, think of this, by the way. Uh, Moses, the one who brought the law, the old covenant, what was his inaugural miracle? Moses did miracles by the hand of God. What was his inaugural miracle? What was it? Not the Red Sea. What was it? Ah, the Nile River 
not turned to wine, turned to what? Blood. blood. And when it was turned to blood, what happened? Everything died. Very interesting. At the giving of the law, guess what happened? Everything died because we can't keep it. Jesus is an auger miracle. The water is not turned to blood. The water is turned to wine and everything lives by Jesus' blood. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. The new wine, far better than the old wine. I'm going to ask Kyle and the team to come up. Uh, in Christ, everything lives. What an amazing grace. What an amazing mercy. Our new life in Christ, so much better than anything else. I want you to know something. Without Jesus' blood being shed for our sins, we are like those six earthen water pots for ceremonial cleansing. We are going through the motions of religion, but it is all just what? Ceremony. It does nothing. But in Jesus Christ, we have our sins forgiven and we enter into new life, to abundant life. That is worthy of all praise. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.